Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 8. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Good morning. I don't think it's probably uncommon, even for a child who grows up in a secure and loving home to at some point ask one of their parents, do you love me? And when the child asks that question, I don't think what they're asking is, have you told me you love me? The child, especially today in our culture, maybe this was probably a little bit different than some of you when you grew up, the culture in your home, but the child has probably been told countless times uh, at bedtime as they go off to school that the parent loves them. I think what the child is trying to figure out is perhaps in a moment of doubt, a moment of uncertainty, how do I know for sure that you love me? In other words, how can I trust your words? And the simplest answer to this is, as a parent, are you kidding me, right? I'm your mother. I'm your father. By my very nature, by the nature of my relationship with you, there is no way I could not love you. But if you want to take it a step farther as a parent, you can also say, look at the past. I birthed you, I nourished you, I spent countless nights waking up with you in the middle of the night. If you doubt my words, look at my actions. You don't just have my words that express my love to you. you they are backed by concrete expressions of love. In other words, the, the parent says to the child, you can trust my word because of who I am and what I have done for you. After Moses has been rejected by Pharaoh and his people, he returns to the Lord and he begins, as we saw last week, to pour out bitter complaints. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? So we have here Moses is, in a sense, starting to, to panic a little bit. He's been given this game plan by the Lord to go to Pharaoh, to go to the Israelites, and things are not going as planned. Pharaoh has rejected him. His own people has rejected him. And he comes to the Lord. He said, you know, I did exactly what you told me to do, and every, all that's happened is trouble. You said your word was you're going to rescue your people, but that has not happened. In other words, Moses is saying to the Lord, how can I trust your words? How can I trust this plan of yours? And how does God respond? Well, in many ways, our passage for today sounds kind of like a repeat of what happened on the mountain when God had his first encounter with Moses. In a sense, God says to Moses, let's try this again. Who am I 
And what have I done for you? So let's start today with who am I? We're in verse two here. God says Moses. God says to Moses in verse two, I am the Lord. So uh, pop quiz here. See if you were listening a few weeks ago. What is behind that Lord in all caps? Is Lord the name of God? No, right? Everyone knows the answer is not. What is behind that all caps Lord? It's Yahweh. Good. We talked about this a few weeks ago at Whenever in the Old Testament you run into Lord in all caps, you need to recognize that what behind, there, behind that is a personal name, is the name Yahweh. And so, so God isn't saying to Moses, I am the Lord. What, Moses, what God is saying to Moses is, I am Yahweh. He's giving him that personal name. Meaning, and we talked about this, God is not some uh, impersonal force in the universe. God is relational. God wants to be known. By giving God's name, God is saying, I want to be known and I want to know you. Yahweh then continues, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. So after reminding Moses who he is, Yahweh then takes Moses back to the past. And he says, I'm not, I'm not some foreign God that can't be trusted. Rather, I'm the same God that revealed myself to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a, there's a well-known story about the uh, French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. And if you, if you don't know who that is, he's considered by, by many one of the greatest and most influential mathematicians of all time. And at the age of 30, Pascal, he had this dramatic conversion experience which changed his life. He went from writing about uh, mathematics and other subjects to primarily writing about his faith and religion. And his conversion experience went like this. On November 23rd, 1654, for two hours, between the hours of 10.30 and 12.30, Blaise Pascal had a powerful and mystical encounter with God. And we know this because after this encounter, he grabbed a pen and he began to write about that experience. And we know this as the memorial. And after listing the date and a few details about what was happening, he writes on that scrap of paper, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. This is a famous line, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosopher and the learned. This God that this brilliant mathematician and philosopher had encountered in these two hours was not some God that he could work out in his head. Rather, this was the God of history. This was a God who had revealed himself at a particular moment to a particular people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the things that is foundational about our faith as Christians is that we worship a God who has chosen to reveal himself in history. Meaning, if you and I are going to understand who this God is, we're going to have to look to the past. We're going to have to look at a story. So the weather, not, maybe not today, but the weather has been beautiful in Northeast Ohio this week, right? The signs of spring are popping everywhere. I think I always find this just a, a magical time of year. We, we, we can look out and I think we can see as people profess faith signs that there is a creator. But while we might be able to look out at the emergence of spring and say there is a God, we don't, it doesn't tell us much about what this God is like. What we need to do, if we want to learn about who this creator God is, we're going to have to root ourselves in a particular story, the story of the Bible, because that is where God reveals who God is. If you're following along in the 
the Midway uh, Bible reading plan. We just moved this week from Genesis to Exodus, and obviously it's a very quick transition. And uh, if you're reading, the God of Genesis doesn't seem like that different from the God of Exodus, right? It seems like the same God. But, but remember, in, in Moses' time, hundreds of years have passed between the God of Genesis and the God of Exodus. And, and God is saying to Moses right now, I know you're discouraged, right? I know you're doubting this whole plan, but remember, I'm not an unknown God. I'm not a foreign God. I'm not some kind of malevolent demon who's just kind of jerking you around here, sending you out on, on some fool's errand to Pharaoh that's never gonna work. No, Moses, I'm the God of the past. I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the one, when, when each of them came to their own obstacles, their own moments of doubt, I'm the one that carried them through and I'm gonna do the same thing with you. In other words, you can trust my words now because of the way I've acted in the past. And there's something else interesting. There is one thing different about this uh, encounter between Moses and Yahweh on the, on here than on the mountain is that God says to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So there, as I said, there's this divine continuity between God. The God of Genesis is the God of Exodus. The God that spoke to, to Moses or to Isaac and Abraham and Jacob is the same God that's speaking to Moses now, but something new is happening. So what God is saying is that I'm revealing myself in a new way to you. I'm revealing myself to you as Yahweh. To them, I gave them the name Lord Almighty. And then in Hebrew, that word is El Shaddai. And if you go back to those uh, stories in Genesis, you'll see those characters will talk about God as El Shaddai, as Lord Almighty. But now God is doing something new. God is revealing a new name, Yahweh. And for us, like, I think this is always just a little strange. What's the big deal about a new name? But remember, in the Bible, a name is much more than like a tag on you. It's much more than just something to get your attention. A name in the Bible tells people who your character is, what your power is. And God is saying to Moses, I'm, I'm the same God that was faithful to you, to your ancestors, but you're getting an even fuller picture of me, of what my character is like. And this is what theologians call progressive revelation. And what it means is in the long arc of the story of the Bible, God does not reveal God's self all at once. So, so we, get, we get bits and pieces of what God is like in various parts, but God does not reveal himself all at once in one place. And so think about this. Why would God do this? Why would God not reveal God's self all at once? Why would he reveal part of himself as God Almighty to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And now he's revealing something new to Moses. Well, think about this. God is, as I said, a relational God. And think about your own relationships. Why don't you reveal yourself fully all at once? Think about this. Think about if I, if I went up to you and I met you for the first time and I said, hi, my name's Matthew. I live in Columbiana. And then I began to tell you just the deepest parts of myself, my hopes, my dreams, my anxieties, my fears. It would probably freak you out a little bit, right? It probably should. Like, you're not ready for that. You're not ready for me to tell you my name, where I'm from, and then to go into the deepest part of who I am. Even us, even in our own relationships with people, we tend to reveal ourselves in a progressive manner, by bits and pieces. And as our relationship grows, we begin to reveal more and more about who we are and who our character is, because that person is now ready for it. 
So Moses, God feels that Moses is now ready for a fuller picture of who he is. And he begins to, to tell him that. Later on in the book in Exodus, we'll get to a, a really important passage where on Mount Sinai, they've, now at this point, they've, they've been freed from slavery. They're on Mount Sinai. Uh, and Moses is receiving the law and the Ten Commandments. And Moses will again be doubting God. He'll be doubting kind of, is God going to go with us? And he asks to see God's glory. And this is a well-known scene. You probably know it. God says he's going to pass in front of Moses and proclaim his name, the Lord, Yahweh. Okay, so, so now, later on in Exodus, we're going to get even a fuller picture of what God is like. And God says this, the Lord, the Lord, right? What do we want to hear? Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate Think about this. The first word that, that God is going to use to reveal himself is this word compassion. What's your view of the God of the Old Testament? I think sometimes we can have a skewed view of that the God of the Old Testament is fundamentally different than the God of the New Testament. And I kind of know kind of where that goes, but what is the first word that the God of the Old Testament uses to describe his character? Compassionate. This word in Hebrew is rahum, and it's from the, the root word rechem. And Rechem means female womb. So in Hebrew, the words for compassion and the words for a, a female womb are closely related. And the idea here is that God's compassion is like the feeling that a mother has for a child in her womb. Just think about that. Think about Let that just settle in for a second. This is a powerful metaphor. A parent's feeling for a child is the description of Yahweh's feeling towards us. That's why when the child grows up later, no matter how much that child exasperates you, when that child asks, do you love me? You say, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? Do you know my nature? And, and God won't reveal this to Moses later on the mountain, but we're seeing the compassionate part of God come out in this passage, because in verse 5, Yahweh says this, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom I have the Egyptians enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. So God looks at the people again. We've seen this multiple times now in our story. God looks at his people, and he's moved to compassion, because that is in God's nature. God is a compassionate God. God has feelings towards his people the way, the way a mother has for the child in her womb. Okay, let's just, catch, let's just review for a second to see where we're at. Moses has, has come to God. He's really discouraged, been rejected by Pharaoh, rejected by his people. This seems to be having some serious doubts about this game plan. And God says, let's try this again. Who am I? I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh, I'm the God of your ancestors, and I'm deeply concerned about the people who are suffering. Now, in verses 6 to 8, God is now going to turn to what God is going to do. So at this point, God has taken Moses to the past, his ancestors. He's reminded them who he is in the present. He's the God of compassion. Uh, and now he turns to the future. And could, Ron, can you put up that slide? So in this, these two little verses, maybe you picked it up while Pat was reading it. You just kept hearing this, I will, I will, I will. And there's actually seven I will statements in these two verses. And they're, they're these, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land and I will give to you as a possession. So there's a lot of I wills, right? 
And Christopher Wright points out that we can kind of see these in three, there's kind of three themes that emerge here. These commandments can be broken up into three groups. The first three, one, two, three, all have to do with redemption. What does redemption mean? We throw this word around a lot. What does it mean? Redemption means to save, to rescue. Okay, in this case, what are the Israelites going to be saved from? They're going to be saved from slavery. Yahweh is going to rescue God's people from slavery. The next two, four and five, have to do with covenant. What is covenant? Covenant is this this word in the Bible that, that refers to this mutually binding relationship that God has with humans. Okay, so God is not just going to bring them out of slavery. God is going to bring the Israelites into relationship with himself. After the, 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 the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt, they're going to go to Mount Sinai, and a covenant is going to be made. It's going to be established between Yahweh and his people. And I've said this you know, several times now in this series, but I'll say it again. The Israelites are not just going to be set free. They're not just going to be saved for the sake of being saved. They're being saved so that they can be in relationship with Yahweh, with a community of people. And the language that's used to describe this covenantal relationship between Yahweh and the Israelites is really marriage language. In verse 7, uh, Yahweh says this, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. So this is, this is wedding language. This language probably comes from a, an old wedding formula that goes, I will take you as my wife, and I will be your husband. So here again, we have this kind of powerful, intimate language that, that Yahweh is using to describe his relationship with his people. And finally then, these last two, uh, I will bring you to land and I will give it to you as a possession, have to do with land. So we've got uh, redemption, redeeming, we've got covenant, and now we've got land. Yahweh is going to bring them to the promised land. And there's, there's, one, other I, there's one other promise that, that Yahweh makes, but it's not an I will, it's a you will. You can take that down now, Ron, Thanks. In verse 7, we read this, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So the Israelites, when they get get out of the land of Egypt, when they become God's people, they're going to know God, but not in some abstract way. They're going to know God in a very real way. They're not going to say, you know, somewhere out there in the sky is some God, and I don't really know what that God's like, but I assume that God is something is for me or loves me or whatever. No, that's not going to be the experience of the Israelites. The Israelites are going to get out of slavery and they're going to be able to say, I know there's a God because I know that God acted on my behalf. I used to be in slavery, right? I used to be in Egypt. And now I can see very clearly that I'm no longer in slavery. So again, remember, Moses is rattled. Game plan doesn't seem to be working as he he thinks. He's doubting God's word. And so, and so he, God takes Moses to the past, says, I was faithful to your ancestors. You can count on me because I acted in the past. And now God is taking uh, Moses to the future. And he's saying, one day you're going to reckon, you're going to look back and you're going to say, I know who God is because that's how God acted. So now, I think Moses is kind of steady now, hopefully. He's going to be ready to go back out into mission. I mentioned when we began this series on Exodus, that one of the reasons why we're spending so much time in the Old Testament, so much time in the book of Exodus, is because Exodus helps us understand Jesus. If we don't have the background of the Old Testament, we are not really going to understand what's happening in the New Testament. It's like, it's like picking up a novel two-thirds of the way through. 
You're gonna, you kind of know what's happening, but you've missed all the background up to that point, all the, all the ways that things have been set up for that last part. So um, think about it. We move to the New Testament. We get to the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. And what is the first thing we come to? We come to a genealogy. And we tend to think about, like most of us get to genealogies, and we think this is kind of boring. We just want to skip over it. But genealogies in the Bible are really important. Because genealogies in the Bible, they establish identity and status. And actually, we see, if you keep reading uh, where we are in Exodus, the story is going to be interrupted, and all of a sudden we're going to have this genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And it's going to seem really strange, because you're like, why are you telling us this? In the middle of the story, the narrator just pauses the story, tells us how both Aaron and Moses came from the Levite family, and then the story picks back up again. But the reason the narrator is doing that is because they want to communicate to the the audience, these guys didn't come out of nowhere, right? These guys have pedigree. These guys are, I hate to say that, but these guys are like the Duke Blue Devils of the, uh, of the Bible. These guys have pedigree. Because, and now, think about it, the genealogy of Matthew. Jesus shows up. Now his lineage is traced back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's part of the story. Okay, so he's got credentials, he's got status, but now as the story goes forward, we're going to begin to recognize, oh, this Jesus isn't just another person. This Jesus is the embodiment of Israel's God. The writer of Colossians puts it this way. The Son is the image of the invisible God. God reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. Okay, so we'll get, they get one picture of God. God then reveals himself to Moses on the mountain as Yahweh. Moses gets an even fuller picture of God. But we profess that through Jesus Christ and through the New Testament, we have received the best picture of God. Again, as the writer of Colossians puts it, when we see Jesus, we see Yahweh. Okay, so when, Yahweh, when Jesus burst onto the scene of the New Testament, something very new is happening, but there's also continuity. The God who revealed himself as, as, as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, then the God who reveals himself as Yahweh, and now the God who reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ is the same God. And if they are the same God, we should see continuity between them. Let me give you, let me give you an example. Most of you have seen my dad. And if you're like most people, you had no trouble figuring out how my dad was connected to me, Right? If you have seen an image of my dad, you have seen something like me. And if you've seen me, you've seen an image of my dad. The way he looks, his height, his voice, I'm told, is very similar to my aunt, my own. My point is you can see continuity between us. And if Yahweh and Jesus are the same, which we profess, we should see continuity. We should see continuity in their character and how they look and how they act. So go back with me now to these, these seven I will commitments that Yahweh makes to the Israelites. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will bring you to the land. Redemption, covenant, land. Think about how these themes emerge in the New Testament. These are like the building blocks of Exodus and really the Old Testament as a whole. And now these themes, redemption, covenant, land, become the building blocks of the New Testament. Let's start with redemption. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus initiates a new Exodus, a new and even greater act of salvation, a new redemption, a new release from slavery. But this time it's not from the bondage of Pharaoh, but it's from the bondage of sin and evil and death. Okay? Covenant. 
From that new exodus that Jesus initiates comes a people. Right? We are saved by Jesus. We are freed by Jesus, not so we can be free, but so that we can be part of a people, the people of God, in service to a new Lord, Jesus Christ. We are, in other words, we're saved into community. We're saved into a new people, made possible by the covenant in Jesus' blood. And the final one, land. Jesus has promised to lead us into a new land, a new Canaan, a new heavens, a new earth. So these, these great themes that are laid out for us in this passage in the Old Testament, all of these are going to now reemerge in the New Testament through the person of Jesus, but on a much bigger scale. So now God in Christ is not just redeeming one people, the Israelites, in one place. God's redemption is for the whole world. And there's one more promise, again, we saw in that text. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. I think most of us can look back, hopefully, in our lives and look at points where in our journey of faith we felt like, I'm sorry, I think we can look back in our life and see moments where we felt like Moses, right? We felt discouraged. We felt like the, the game plan that we, we thought we understood was not working out as we thought. We thought, we think, you know, here we are following Jesus, and following Jesus just seems to bring trouble to myself, maybe even to my family. And we begin to ask, like Moses, like, how can I trust your word? How do I know who you are? How do I know that you are for me? How can I trust this plan? And at those moments when we look back in our past, we can look back and see a God who has acted in history, a God who has acted in concrete ways. How do, I, how do I know that I can trust God's word? How do I know that God loves me? Well, look at the cross. That's how we know. Who, who else would do that for you and for me? This is exactly what we do during the season of Lent. We we rehearse the story of the cross. We relive again our moment of salvation so that we can be reminded, so that we can know again the Lord is God. God is a God who can be trusted, even in our discouragement, even in our confusion, even when the game plan seems to have gone haywire because of what God has done for us. We can also, I think, look back most of us, hopefully, in our personal lives, and we can see smaller moments where God has been faithful to us. We have this one supreme act in history in which God acted on our behalf through Jesus' death, but I think most of us have these smaller moments. We look back and we say, God was encouraging me. God was showing me his faithfulness to me. Maybe some of you even have moments of fire. Yes, I am faltering in my trust right now like Moses, Yes, I'm doubting the game plan, but when I stop and look back, when I take the time to look back at those moments, I think, this is a God who is for me. And I'm steadied. I'm ready to be sent back out into mission like Moses. After Blaise Pascal wrote down on that little scrap of piece of paper the experience he had that, that dramatic night in 1654, he then took that piece of paper and he carefully sewed it into the inside of his jacket so that it went with him wherever he went. It was only by chance discovered uh, by a servant after Blaise Pascal died. At the end of the description of this event, he writes these words, I will not forget your words. Why did, why did he do this? He had this two-hour dramatic encounter with God, and the first thing that he does is he grabs a pen, he writes it down, and he ends it with, I will not forget your words. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if in part because he understood that we are forgetful people. I think he probably did it so that he could come back to it again and again when the doubt started to creep in. 
Moses, he saw fire on the mountain. Moses saw a staff turn to a snake, and yet his confidence, not too long later, is totally shaken. As spectacular as the Exodus will be, the Israelites will be led out of slavery in Egypt. It will not be long before at Mount Sinai, where they are receiving the covenant, they then turn to worship a false god and say, this is the false god who led us out of slavery. We are forgetful people. We are like Moses. We're like the Israelites. We are prone to turn away from God Almighty who has acted decisively to free us from the yoke of slavery and begin to turn to false gods and say, this is what's saving me now. And what we need to do in those moments is we need to do, is we need to take out of our, our, our side pockets, out of our jacket pockets, the memories of how God has been faithful to us in the past. We need to keep those memories close to the chest. We need to take those memories out frequently, daily. We need to remind ourselves God can be trusted because of who God is and what God has done. Certitude, certitude, feeling joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the one who through your son Jesus redeemed us with an outstretched arm and the one who made us your people and are leading us to the new promised land. And yet, Lord, we are a forgetful people. We're easily rattled. We're lured by false gods. Make us secure in your love that we might know who you are, that you have set us free, and to whom we owe our lives. May we trust your words again, and may the, the power of your love be in us. And may we recognize again this death that we remember of yours, this Lenten season. May it light a fire in us. In Jesus' name, amen.